This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 8, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Antonin Scalia's recent opinion scaling back the power of the Armed Career Criminal Act may impact hundreds or thousands of federal inmates. Mary Price is the general counsel of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. She explains the importance of the case of Johnson v. United States. Under federal law, a person with a felony conviction, a prior felony conviction, is not permitted to possess a firearm or ammunition. If one is convicted of possessing a firearm or ammunition, they're they're subject to a statutory maximum of 10 years in federal prison. That 10-year statutory maximum is transformed into a 15-year mandatory minimum if the felon has three prior felonies, either uh, serious drug offenses or violent felonies. And the question that was presented to the court uh, this time, again, on the fifth occasion is, what is a violent felony under federal law? And that's a really, it's, it's such an interesting question. It should be very clear to people what, a, what constitutes a, a violent felony. So what were the choices that judges have been asked to make when it comes to making this determination? That's a great question. The federal statute that we're talking about is called the Armed Career Criminal Act, and it starts out actually really well in defining the answer to that question. Here's what it says. It says that a violent felony is one that has an, as an element the use of physical force. And um, an element is something that has to be proven to the jury or it has to be admitted by the defendant. Um, Other violent felonies are uh, burglary, arson, extortion, or felonies that involve the use of explosives. Those are all laid out very clearly in the statute. But the Armed Career Criminal Act got into trouble with something called the residual clause. The residual clause says um, a violent felony can also be one that otherwise involves conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another. The court was presented with a question repeatedly over the last eight years about that otherwise clause, uh, which has come to be known as the residual clause. Conduct. Conduct. So it, it, may, it may be a felony conviction for something that a court decides is worthy of inclusion for the purposes of turning this uh, – maximum of 10 years into a minimum of 15 years. Exactly. It's just crazy statutory interpretation land because there are, think about it, 50 states and territories and so forth. And um, they all have lots of criminal laws. And a number of those laws are um, prohibitions that involve some potential of risk of um, physical injury to other people, but they are not very clearly defined. And this is what happened in the case of Mr. Johnson. So what are what were some of the hard choices that judges had to make in saying this is conduct that could contribute to this bodily harm and what is conduct that just isn't, doesn't fall into that category, yet are still felony? Absolutely. Well, I'll use some examples from some of the cases that the Supreme Court has found itself struggling with over the last eight years. Uh, For example, fleeing the scene of a crime in a car, is that or isn't it? Well, yes, it is, according to the court. Drunk driving? No. Uh, Attempted burglary? Yes. Um, Failing to report to jail? No. 
Now, remember, all of those instances came to the court after people had been convicted uh, under the Armed Career Criminal Statute based on one of these priors. So the courts have been struggling, not just the Supreme Court, but um, federal courts around the country have been struggling to define this as well. The Supreme Court attempted over and over again over the years to define tests to sort out whether or not these acts were the conduct that you are pointing to. Um, and ultimately, uh, Justice Scalia, who starting in 2008 in dissents began explaining that there was not an intelligible principle to be found here actually prevailed. And he wrote the majority opinion in this case, overturning the residual clause. And so, uh, I mean, the issue is, if the issue is conduct, there's, there is no, there's nothing to grab onto, really. There's just uh, what a judge might think. Precisely. Precisely. But, I mean, judges will look at the four corners of the state statute to try and determine. I mean, they're not going to just decide that this is conduct, but they are going to try and use the state statute. And then these convoluted tests that the Supreme Court had come up with in um, uh, Cato and Families Against Mandatory Minimums, uh, actually um, in our amicus brief to the Supreme Court on this issue called this residual clause whack-a-mole. Is this uh, a crime of violence? No, yes, maybe, whack, and so forth. Um, and happily, we're, we're done with that, I hope. And, and further, because the federal government is having to reach into state-level convictions, you're dealing with 50 sets of statutes, you're dealing with uh, some things that are considered felonies in some states and are legal in other states. Take the case of Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson um, was convicted, one of his prior convictions was for possessing a sawed-off shotgun. He made two arguments the first time this case came to the court. One of them was possessing a sawed-off shotgun of itself is not a, a violent felony under the residual clause. It doesn't present, uh, present a risk of harm to others. Um, and, uh, you know, the, that uh, argument was bolstered by the fact that in a number of states, possessing a sawed-off shotgun is not illegal. Justice Scalia, uh, in, in his majority opinion, struck that residual clause finally. And now what happens next? Well, all of the people who have pending cases, cases that have not been finalized by a sentence and uh, a closed appeal, um, will probably have go, go back to the court. They'll be remanded, as it were, and, and, and their cases will be addressed. The big question is about all of the people who were convicted uh, as being armed career criminals and sentenced to a 15-year mandatory minimum um, who had at least one prior under the residual clause, what happens with them. And I think that there are lawyers all over the country going through their case files to find them and to begin to bring challenges, post-conviction challenges or habeas corpus challenges, to um, the federal courts to uh, see if we can get some relief for these many, many people. Is there any estimate for how many people will be affected? I have no idea. Um, I, I think it could be quite a lot. I mean, it's a lot of states. There are a lot of, I mean, it's a question of how many, I guess as a percentage of how many Armed Career Criminal Act convictions. Um, but I, I, just, I just do not know. I mean, it's been a lot of years of um, ACCA convictions. This seems like a case of the Supreme Court just being the high court. That is, 
were the final say on statute. Why is this an important constitutional case? Well, it's an interpretation of one of the most important principles in our Constitution. It has to do with due process. And what Justice uh, Scalia told us in this case is that it violates due process to take away somebody's life or liberty using a law that is so vague that it fails to give ordinary people any notice of what is or isn't um, unlawful conduct. Mary Price is the general counsel at Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Learn more about how to fix our broken criminal justice system at our website, cato.org.